Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of Army of Crime. I am your co-host, Matt, and I'm here with my other co-host, Dustin. Oh, hey, man. How's it going? Pretty good. We are going to look at The Spirit Archives by Will Eisner, written and drawn by Will Eisner, and the movie Agora, taking place in the East Roman Empire slash Roman-occupied Egypt in the late 300s, early 400s AD. That is correct. Probably pronouncing this incorrectly, but Alejandro... A Manabar film starring uh, Rachel Weiss and Oscar Isaac. So I guess we could talk about Agora first. You had not seen this film before. I had not seen Agora before. I thought it was a really good movie. I really enjoyed a lot of the technical stuff. The fact that it literally includes like shots of like outer space. Like there's, I think there's at least two shots. There's one, the opening shot, I believe, is of the planet Earth. And there's a shot that zooms in from the planet Earth into Alexandria, which if you remember, there's that old Hitchcock thought shot. I think it's in Psycho, where he does like a helicopter shot into a person's room. So yeah. now we've like upgraded that. We're literally starting in space and looking down all the way into the city of Alexandria. There's a lot of really nice shots of just the city too. So it really gives you a good sense of space. And of like the world. And of course, she's concerned with studying the movement of the heavens. So seeing it from this global kind of image, this global perspective of seeing the whole planet, I think really ties into that nicely thematically. During the attack on the library, too, there's even I noticed there's even an upside down shot. Yeah, the camera literally tilts all the way upside down. Films should have more upside down shots. Probably not wrong about that. We should maybe give some quick background on this film. So it's about the philosopher and astronomer and teacher who lived in Roman-occupied Egypt in the 300s and 400s AD. Uh, her name was Hypatia, and it's about uh, her life teaching there and then her life getting kind of mixed in with the rising conflict between the Jews, the Christians, and the, for lack of a better term, the pagans. So it kind of operates actually on a few different tracks because you've got a love triangle between Hypatia and two of her students, one of whom grows up to, well, actually, her student, played by Oscar Isaac, who ends up becoming the prefect of Alexandria, and then a slave, a former slave of hers, who also has romantic feelings for her, who is freed and then ends up joining this militant Christian sect. And then, so you've got this like love triangle sort of, and then you've got the rising conflicts between the Christians who are now no longer being persecuted, um, or recently, I guess, they uh, had not been persecuted for a while at this point, but they have become the majority in Alexandria and the conflict between them and the Jews. And then the um, they eventually make it so that like the pagans can't worship in public. And then you have Hypatia, who is, as you said, is attempting to study the movements of the planets and the stars and the sun and kind of developing theories about how this all like fits together. And I thought Rachel, Rachel Weiss did a really good job showing someone who's both really smart, but she's also kind of naive in a lot of ways because she doesn't seem to realize how dangerous the situation is getting for the city that she lives in. You know, she's just really focused on studying her her math and her science. 
Yeah, I think the I, film manages to avoid a lot of weird tropes that would come up because there's like the the scientist that can't remember to put pants on thing, and they kind of avoid that while also getting across that she is much more focused on science and philosophy than the everyday stuff that's happening outside her window. And as you mentioned, there's sort of a love triangle, but I don't think she's ever actually in a relationship with any of those people. So no, it's more of her character never seems to be romantically interested in anyone. There's basically just two men who are pining away for her. And actually, I thought that part of the film was the least effective. Um, and thankfully, as it goes on, they don't really devote a lot of time to it. Yeah, um, that's where I like that they kind of sidestep that. Like, you kind of set it up a little, and then eventually they end up sidestepping it. It's really more of an acquaintance triangle or a triangle of, of people who know who each other are more yeah. than an actual love triangle, which would not have been as interesting. Yeah, and like you were saying before, I think the uh, the director, um, Alejandro, uh, I'm sure I'm butchering his name, Amenabar, um, does this really interesting thing where he, you know, in line with Hypatia's interest in the stars and the planets and how the heavenly bodies all fit together, there's often these large expansive shots of the city of Alexandria and of the earth and the camera sort of like pushing in from the view of the earth, like into the city of Alexandria, into the library. So it, it like shows how minuscule the conflicts between these religions are and kind of keeps your perspective where her thoughts always are which is like how do all of these you know bodies floating in space fit together like how does this all work um, right you have some really nice overhead shots where you can see all the people bustling around and they're just like little dots yeah it, it really like um i think effectively dwarfs like demonstrates from her perspective how small and inconsequential all these human problems are in comparison to like you know the sun or the, the earth moving around the sun or the sun moving around the earth depending upon you know your perspective i also liked that they avoided the trope of the ancient smart person just like deducing all kinds of stuff that they wouldn't really be able to figure out because it, she didn't just like figure the whole thing out and go aha i figured out you know there's an elliptical orbit and everything has its own gravity which is kind of what she's circling the whole movie, no pun intended. But it manages to have her sort of figure some of it out without it just being like, oh, here's a smart person. So they just automatically know a bunch of stuff that a person from their time period probably wouldn't know. Yeah, and so apparently there are no writings of Hypatia that survive. So it's not actually clear what she all would have known or what she figured out or didn't figure out. So I think the film wisely airs on the side of, you know, not crediting her with the discovery of like, you know, everything in the world having to do with astronomy. What did you think of the uh, depiction of the conflict between the Christians and the Jews and the pagans? So as a giant history person, I had thoughts on that. So this conflict, they're, they're kind of showing us some different things here. So there's Hypatia of Alexandria and her life. And then they're also trying to show large scale, like cultural forces happening. And they're trying to have it happen in kind of her lifetime. Because by that point in the Roman Empire, Christianity, like you said, was already the majority religion. So it would not have been a situation where when she was a kid, there was pagans everywhere. And now that she's older, there's Christians everywhere. 
she basically would have grown up in a Christian world or, or in a majority Christian world. So right. that is an, undoubtedly, I think, an actual historical process that took place. And there would have been some kind of cultural tipping point where a bunch of people would have started converting because it just seemed like the thing to do. You know, nobody wants to be on the losing team. So people would have started mass converting, I'm sure, at some point. I feel like that would have already happened. I think that already happened, like, before she was even born. I think she would have lived more in the world where almost everybody is Christian. Yes, I think that was a bit of creative liberty. What I did like, though, was it showed why somebody might become Christian. Because I don't know about you, but in the first half of the movie, I actually had a lot of sympathy for the Christians because they are being oppressed. And the guys with swords are coming out to kill them. Part where Davis... Davis the Slavis uh, grabs a sword and he wants to like start smashing the pagan statues like I was kind of there with you I was like yeah Davis fight the oppressors right the Christians are able to successfully move from the oppressed to the oppressors themselves which was definitely a thing that happened it was not a thing that happened within one person's lifetime but you do get the sympathy for them like you understand why someone like him would join up with them. And you also understand why someone like Oscar Isaac's character would convert because he's a smart guy and he's a political person. And there's going to be a point where it's just in his interest to convert to Christianity. So in that sense, I think that's a lot of interesting things that it shows us. It is a historical creative license to squeeze it all into one person's lifetime. Which is fine. I mean, that's yeah, that's not necessarily a complaint with the movie. Right. And I did research it a little, and it looks like the um, Cyril of Alexandria was responsible for the expulsion of the Jews. So that part of it is definitely accurate. It's a weird dynamic that develops between Christians and Jews once you start moving into the the medieval, closer to the medieval period. Because there's definitely this thing where they start turning against the Jews in greater and greater numbers. Anytime like an East Roman emperor wants to drum up a little popular support, you know, they'll pass some kind of laws prohibiting Jews. And we see Davis has sort of doubts about this, but they, they fall back on that old, you know, they killed, they killed Jesus line, which yeah, I guess well, people never really get sick of. It's never, has yet to go out of fashion. That character's motivation seemed to mainly be his love for Hypatia, because he is, and this is, I guess, not really a spoiler, because this is one of the few historical facts that is known about her, but she gets killed by a Christian mob for, well, a law is passed basically saying that everyone has to be publicly baptized who is not already known to be a Christian. And she's like, okay, fine, whatever. It seems like they're basically giving her an ultimatum to retire from public life. Yeah. And basically go hide somewhere. Like stop showing your face in public. They seem offended that there's a pagan who has this like position of prominence. I think it has more to do with that political angle. But just like in real life, there's a weird confluence between religious and political angles when you have people from ostensibly somewhat different religious organizations because the prefect is Christian, but he's drawing on a different set of Christians for his support, whereas Cyril has control of like the Christian religious police. So it is a religious conflict. It's also a political conflict. And I think that's actually a good, I think it illustrates that very well, because that is a lot of how those conflicts play out, because they're religious conflicts, kind of over scripture, they're also political conflicts. Yeah, so basically, yeah, she's unwilling to go along with what the Christians are demanding of her, and then a mob like a, of these like militant Christians, um, this militant sect, uh, grabs her off the street, and they 
kill her. Though in the film, I mean, I guess it plays out a little differently in the film. I won't spoil it because it involves, um, you know, Davis is the character who is the Christian who is still in love with her and he's like attempting to stop them. Um, but it doesn't break from history overall. Like the mob does kill her. Um, but which again is not a spoiler because it's from 400 AD. Yeah. And I think it's one of the few concrete facts that are still known about her is that she gets killed because of her, I guess, suspected influence over the leaders and the, you know, intelligentsia of Alexandria. So it sounds like that you, um, even aside from the history, you did really enjoy this film. I did really like the film. Yeah, there's a lot of really good imagery. Like you said, the shots of the city. There's a lot of good acting. I think it manages to have a lot of things happening. You know, in the script, you've got she's a teacher. There's the math. There's the science. You get this kind of political thing. So, yeah, I liked it. I thought it was a good movie. I could go into the historical stuff, you know, like the Library of Alexandria. The burning of the Library of Alexandria would not have also happened in her lifetime either. Yeah, that, that was a, they that happens in the sort of prologue section of the film, and they kind of take some creative liberty in, in moving that into her life. But you know, yeah. that's just how when you make a movie about it, you're trying to de- depict some sort of cultural forces moving, which is a very difficult thing to show. So I think they actually do a good job of that. Right, because that's something that in reality would happen you know, generally over the course of like several generations. So you want to be able to show it in some kind of like dramatic way. And that while also making a film about Hypatia. So you kind of like put it together. Here's a question. What did you think of the character of Davis, the slave? I actually did not care for, he's played by, I believe, Max Minghella. And I was not like a huge fan, to be honest. I did not. I felt like his character and that performance were kind of a weak point in the film because his motivation just seems to entirely be he's in love with her and he doesn't know what to do and i think the love angle is the weakest part of the kind of three plots that the film is sort of juggling that's interesting because i actually liked his character and i did not even see him motivated by love necessarily because he really doesn't make any attempt to interact with her for like years and years and years that's true. He he kind of like sees her on the street one day, and then I guess that kind of like brings it all back. Um, yeah, and he is and he is kind of like doubting. Like, was it good that we just like massacred all these like Jews? Was that a good thing to do or no? And then yeah, it's like yeah, no, have, it was awesome. You have to assume there's a lot of people like him in that kind of a movement, but they just kind of keep their mouth shut and go along with it. There's some kind of point where it just gains like a momentum and people get sucked into it. I found the Oscar Isaacs character as the prefect and like the bishops, I found that to be kind of more interesting. Sounds like you like this movie maybe a little more than I did. but I, I did like it a lot, yeah. And this is a historical time period that I'm kind of interested in. Yeah, I think, and I think overall the film does a really nice job of making you effectively care about the conflict between the Christians, the early Christians, and the other religious groups in Alexandria and in illustrating kind of the life of Hypatia. The Spirit by Will Eisner. The Spirit by Will Eisner. Specifically, archives number 14, which was picked somewhat arbitrarily just to narrow it down to one collection. This is after World War II, I think 1947, where uh, Eisner comes back from the war and takes over 
back overriding and illustrating the spirit from like his studio. Right. So the, the background would be the spirit is the comic strip technically because it, it was um, premiered in the Sundays. It was a newspaper insert. Yeah. So I don't know if you even call that a strip then it's its own thing. I guess it's almost like a little magazine. It's like, they, well, they were like, yeah, like a seven page comic pamphlet that was uh, included as part of the Sunday paper, I believe. Everybody so written and drawn by Will Eisner. Uh, Will Eisner, of course, of Eisner Award fame. So he's considered basically the grandfather of comic books as an art form or sequential art, if you want to get hoity-toity. Which written and drawn debated, by Eisner. But anyway. Uh, right. Well, you know, it's hard to pin everything on one guy. But in, in any sense, he's the, in any case, he's the, he's considered the, the elder statesman of the, of the comic book industry, correctly or not, if you want sure. to debate it. Um, and the Spirit Archives tries to collect the whole thing in order. So we picked 14. That's after he goes to World War II. There's a stretch of about five or six volumes where they are not by him because he goes to the war he comes back and then most people consider that kind of is the the cream of the crop once he comes back from the war things kick into high gear so i've read through spirit archives volumes like one through six on my own and then just kind of a smattering of later ones so yeah we picked 14 somewhat arbitrarily but these are all written and drawn by eisner and there is a stretch where they're not all written and drawn by eisner so was something about the spirit i mean there's a lot you could say people have probably written books about it well let's say this do you think that Will Eisner's spirit comics are good. I think that they are good. Yes. There is a couple of things we could talk about with their goodness. So the art is good. And I think the fact that he incorporates some of the titles into the art and he has these, there's a page, there's a shot in this panel where it's like a house and you can see people running down through all the floors of the house. So like each panel is like a room of the house and it's a full, you know, it's like a full image. He does a lot of cool stuff like that, and I think that's good. And I think there's a nice sense of movement, of momentum in the in the panels, in the, the way he incorporates the art. So I think the art on like a technical level is very good. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that uh, the art is, is great. Like you're saying, um, because each one of these is basically a self-contained story in seven pages. So they're very... Uh, like he does a great job, I think, of keeping the art very uh, fluid and keeping the momentum of the stories really moving. And like you said, um, the spirit is kind of famous for these like opening splash pages. They're not really splash pages. It's like a half page image often where or even like a full page image where the title of the comic will be like incorporated into some kind of like larger art piece. That's like the opening of the story. Um, so, the, I mean, and that stuff is all really impressive. And he's also got a lot of, like, really striking images throughout. Um, Will Eisner is, I think, been very open about being influenced by, like, uh, pulp detective fiction and, like, film noir. So there's a lot of really, often a lot of, like, really interesting sort of, like, shadowy images going on. Like, in the first story in this collection, which is called Perfect Crime... It's about these like people who retreat to an island to hide out from the spirit. And it gets into all these like moody, kind of like shadowy sequences of these criminals like slowly going insane as they're worried that the spirit is going to catch them. Yeah. And if you're talking about the, the stories, ostensibly, it's like a detective thing. He's like a private detective who works for the police department. I actually found the best stories or the ones I like the best were the ones where he simply uses the spirit as like a framing device. 
to tell a story, and the one you're talking about, the spirit is in it very little, and most of the is just people. Most of the story is people talking about the spirit. So I believe they always refer to him as some kind of outlaw. But yeah, often they'll just be like these little self-contained like crime stories that the spirit will like pop up at the end to like arrest somebody. Or something like that. There, it also veers into science fiction, and I like the science fiction one too. Which were some of your favorite uh, stories from? I like the Perfect Crime, as you mentioned. It's actually the first one in here. I liked the story where he meets the doctor. He has to swallow the poison, Silken Floss. He has this thing for like femme fatale characters, I guess. Yeah, um, the, and the names are, I guess, what you would now. Obviously, this was pre. James Bond, but they always make me think of like the ridiculous names of Bond girls. He seems to have that same kind of propensity for coming up with these weirdly elaborate names for the female characters. But anyway, continue. Yeah, I liked the school for girls thing. There is a sidetrack that we could come back to on that. The, the school for girls with Sari. I like the story where the where he goes to the haunted house and there's a woman waiting there for him. And she thinks that he's the ghost and she keeps shooting him. That one has some really nice art in it of like her waiting out in the haunted house is essentially a haunted house story. So the spirit used as a frame to tell a haunted house story. But in the story, I mean, she's not actually she's worried that this guy has come there to kill her. So she keeps attacking him, but she never really gets a good look at him. And then it turns out that it actually is the spirit. She asked to come out there to help. Her, right. And he just right. made it there faster than she thought he would. Yeah, so there's one that's called Escape, where it's just the story of these three different crooks who break out of jail and what becomes of them. So it like start each one starts with this little card showing you who they are and what their crimes are, and then basically what immediately becomes of them as they break out of jail. And of course, none of it ends up being that good. You know, they don't come to good ends. You would say there's a story where Will Eisner, it's called like No Spirit Today, where it's about how Will Eisner didn't do a spirit comic. So the spirit is mad because he's like, I go on all these adventures and now Eisner can't even like do a book this week where Will Eisner uh, gets attacked by a character that he creates. So this, although most of the story is like from a per first person perspective of uh, Will Eisner himself. So that one's a lot of fun. It's actually weird how many like meta references there are in here. Yeah, because later someone will be like, oh, Spirit, you never got beaten up. You usually get beaten up before one of your adventures is over. Yeah, and then somebody clocks him right at the end. That's kind of one of the running jokes of, of this Spirit uh, comic is that he always like uh, gets the, the snot kicked out of him. I really like the story called Hangley Hollier Mansion which is one of the stories that only has the spirit, I think, in like one or two panels. But it's basically this woman relating the story of how she's attempting to murder one brother so that the other brother will marry her because the, the one brother that she wants to marry is uh, basically stuck caring for his invalid brother, so she keeps trying to kill. I guess that doesn't sound like much as I explain it, but it's, yeah. sort, of a, it's sort of a fun like little dark comedy of this woman who keeps trying and failing to to kill this guy so that the brother will marry her. Should we talk about the... The racism? Yeah. Yeah, so the spirit has a sidekick character who is this kid named Ebony White, who is supposed to of be... Of course his name is Ebony White. Right. Uh, in the He is black, and he is drawn in this extremely caricatured uh like racist way where he has like these like giant red lips and 
it, it's it's like every time the uh, Ebony White shows up, you know, like so much of uh, of the spirit is so like masterful and so clever and so intelligent, and then every time Ebony White shows up, you're just like, oh. There's even entire stories basically starring Ebony. Yeah, there's like a story in here where it's like about him like trying to get like a jazz band together that's like full of these like black caricatures. Um, and there's it's... other there's another uh, like a Piccaninny character character that's like six inches tall. I'm not yeah. even sure what, what he's supposed to be, if it's supposed to be like a little kid or and it's weird because he has other like black characters drawn in like a perfectly normal way who speak in a perfectly normal, non-stereotypical way. But right. he doesn't seem to see the problem with leaning into these characters. And I tried to read on this a little bit, and he seems to think his his reasoning is that he's trying to like reappropriate, I, I guess, or like use this character, but use it for like a good character or like a positive character. I don't buy that I don't, at all. I don't I, I can't I don't really know how to explain it. But he does lean into some extremely racist characters, is the characters is the short version of it. And I really, it's, it kind of doesn't square up with, like you said, how intelligent and well put together a lot of it is. It's like, by the way, here's the jazz singer and, you know, Citizen Kane spliced together. It just seems very weird. Part of it is, is that the character of Ebony, I think is, is something that he has decided is going to be the comic relief in the spirit. So it's like, you'll have these intelligent, really like well done little like crime stories. And then whenever he, not whenever, but then when he wants to like go to a joke, it's using this like racist character, which is really um, an unfortunate decision that he kept making for years and years because people apparently even at the time kind of like criticized it and he kind of like <laughs> stuck to his guns. Yeah, I believe he eventually does drop Ebony and replace him with a different sidekick. Oh, really? What's the new sidekick? I believe Samuel is the is the sidekick that he uses for the last stretch of the spirit, which is a kid. So it fulfills the same role. It looks kind of like a cartoon character compared to how everyone else is drawn. But he does yeah. not erase his character. That's and thing. it seems like the better choice would be to just go with a black character that is not a character. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, because... Ebony is drawn in a really exaggerated way that almost none of the other characters, like the spirit himself is drawn with fairly like realistic proportions. And then you have other side characters like Commissioner Dolan is kind of exaggerated, you know, but all the women are drawn in this sort of like realistic pinup way. And then you have this one character who shows up and is drawn like, uh, like it could be lifted out of like a Ku Klux Klan pamphlet or something. He also has a really thick Italian accent on the guy in the story about the Italian guy trying to steal Mussolini's yeah. locket. So I on some level, the, uh... he just seems to be a big fan of leaning hard into like stereotypes. And I'm not. Yeah, I know later in his life, he wrote an entire graphic novel about the evils of anti-Semitism. It just yeah. seems like a very, very, very strange blind spot. It's possible to have humor in comic books without leaning for like you know, racial or ethnic stereotypes. But that seems to be where his funny bone was, was in that kind of stuff. And like I said, it's weird because he has other black characters that are not but, drawn like that. That almost like makes it worse. 
Because then it's like he knows better, I guess, but he just thinks it's funny. I don't know. He has other black characters that speak like just like the spirit does and are drawn in realistic proportions. And it's weird to see them even interact with Ebony. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting because, I mean, it's unfortunate because so much of the spirit is so good. But like you would almost have to hesitate to recommend it to someone because it's like, oh, by the way, there's also... This, these extremely like racist drawings in here as well. I know there's a best of the spirit trade. And if you read that, they seem to have picked out only ones that don't ha really have Ebony in them for more than one or two panels. And those are all really good stories. So it's not even a case of like, oh, to read the best spirit, you have to read the ones with Ebony in them because a lot of the good ones don't even have Ebony in them. And I think the ones that just star Ebony are ones that you could probably skip, I feel like. Yeah. There's also some sexism, if you want to... Yes, the gender roles are also not great, because most of the female characters are either a femme fatale or, like, love-struck schoolgirl. Actually, where I like the one about Silk and Floss, who is sort of a femme fatale, but she has no interest in seducing or, like, being in a relationship with anyone. Yeah. She's probably the closest to, like, a legitimate female character. The gender roles, yes, are also not good. And again, he's leaning into that film noir, like, pulp detective sort of aesthetic there is sort of a yeah pulp film noir aesthetic going on there's also one of the early stories not to like continue to harp on this but he the spirit requires help and he asks Al ellen who is the sort of recurring love interest and she is like oh i can't go out wearing slacks so then she gets distracted by having to pick out the best dress to wear and then he asks ebony white to help and then ebony white gets distracted by learning the steps to like some jazz dance. So right away when you're reading this volume, you can you get like a clear view of like where his uh, sense of humor is at, unfortunately. Yeah, it is unfortunate because the strong parts are very, very strong, but it just it really dates it with that with that kind of content. And the thing is, is if you were to present the best parts of this that don't have that sort of stuff in it, it, it really isn't dated at all because the things he's doing with like panel structure, I think are still good. It's not good for like this time period. It's just like legitimately good. Like you could look at it now and you say, oh, this is cool how he does this. You'll have people, you know, running up and down the page, right? Broken off into panels. The panels are rooms. I just think that's a lot of really cool stuff. And then he just leans into all this just, as the kids would say, extremely problematic material. Yeah, the spirit is, to use the parlance of our times, a bit of a problematic fave. How do you, I don't want to like excuse it and say, oh, that's okay, because he's really good at making comic strips. So I don't really don't know what, if you want to throw, somebody could throw Will Eisner under the bus for that, and I guess it is what it is. I'm not even sure how I would put a final point on it. You know, I would just say that, you know, if you're interested in these kinds of really sharply done sort of action, adventure, detective, crime comics, it's worth checking out as long as you are okay with the racist and to a lesser degree sexist content. But, uh, you know, like on the whole, in terms of like the cartooning and the creativity, like this is some of the best, you know, American comics that would have been being created at this time or like comics as a whole, you know, like as far as like a book, you could put it right up there with like Plastic Man and, you know, some of the better like adventure strips. Which, to be fair, like it's not like Will Eisner was the only racist or the only uh, cartoonist who indulging in like these racist tropes. But 
it is unfortunate that they mar what is otherwise some like exceptional comics. Do you have a uh, recommendation? My recommendation is actually a comic. So this is a little weird. When I'm recording this, it's not even in trade yet. But it is a comic that makes me think of the relationship between religion and institutional or imperial empire-based religion, which is the comic book Relay, written by Zach Thompson, published by Aftershock Comics. As we are recording this, issue number four just came out. So possibly by the time you're listening to this, there are trade paperbacks. So if you want to get the trade paperback for that, when you're listening to this at some point in the future, I could recommend that. If you want to track down the individual issues, you could certainly do that too. But Relay, published by Aftershock Comics, I won't even give into what it's about because it's a science fiction thing, but it is sort of about the relationship between religion and empire. So kind of tying in with Agora. Right. Also sort of tying in with Agora, I, there's a film that I would recommend called The Fall of the Roman Empire which, like uh, Edward Gibbons' The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, it takes the death of Marcus Aurelius as sort of the beginning of the end of the empire. Um, but this is sort of an epic sword and sandal film from the 60s, and it stars Sophia Loren, Stephen Boyd, Alec Guinness, James Mason, and Christopher Plummer. It was directed by Anthony Mann. And it kind of comes at the end of the sword and sandal, like Hollywood cycle, where they were like leaning into making all kinds of these like bigger is better uh, ancient epics. But the fall of the Roman Empire is sort of a revisionist epic. And like I said, as it comes at the end of this cycle, like the very beginning, uh, like the sun is coming up and it's kind of like dark and cloudy. And they're, uh, he has like a, like an oracle doing a, um, like reading the signs and of like a bird, you know, like guts, like they would do. And he says, like, the omens are ill, sir. And then from there, it kind of like goes into the violence and the decline of this like empire, like coming apart at the seams with Marcus Aurelius played by Alec Guinness dying. And then his son Commodus played by Christopher Plummer, of course, taking over and being like this mad, insane tyrant. And the main character, who's played by Stephen Boyd, is uh, childhood friends with Commodus, who then sort of has to like reckon with what the Empire has become and what he's going to do about it. Uh, it's also basically the same story as the movie Gladiator, and I'm not sure if they that was like intentional or not, or if they've ever like acknowledged that. Um, but it's a really well done, sort of like revisionist. Uh, Roman epic that kind of came at the end of the traditional sword and sandal uh, cycle in Hollywood. The fall of the Roman Empire. That's our show. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter. I am at Army of Crime and Dustin is at Dustin44. 44. Let us know what you thought. If you thought we missed something, uh, just let us know. If you want to leave a review, whatever on. podcatcher you use, Stitcher, I use Podcast Republic. It's all good. Whatever you're listening to us on, if you thought it was worth a listen, give us a five-star review. That would be very, very helpful. Or like I said, find us on Twitter, social media, let you know 
let us know what you thought. As always, try and stay alive out there in the scary, dystopian world of the future that we live in now. You think you're better than me? That's fine.